It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Quentin Tarantino. Thank you. Well, you know, it's just. Writing. I mean, uh, I mean, I consider novelists real writers. Now, I actually consider screenwriters real writers too. And then, and I was listening to a, a podcast, Table Reads, with Sean McBee and Trevor Thompson, where they were kind of going through a bunch of my screenplays, and they'd actually read the screenplays, so they were actually quoting things from the scripts that didn't make the movie. Experience the worst Hollywood has to offer with readings of the scripts you never wanted. Table Reads. Every Tuesday, right here on the Rogue Intel Podcast Network, or visit TableReadsPodcast.com. Quentin Tarantino does not endorse this message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen out there in internet land, and welcome to another awesome episode of the Powerful Nerdcast. I am Corey, and joined with me, as always, is my good friend, Christian. Hey, internet. Well, I want to say that this is an unusual Powerful Nerdcast. Usually, Corey and I pick, like, three to five topics on the internet and just discuss them, you know, in pop culture land. But we have spent the last year working on a documentary in our media production company outside of YouTube and everything else we do, working on an awesome documentary called The After Hours Club with a gentleman called Morgan St. Knight. And he is here with us today, and we are excited to tell you guys about this documentary because it is about to go live. Probably by the time you listen to this, it will be live. So there's going to be links in the video and the podcast so you can check it all out. And Morgan, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, guys. And I just want to say it's been a great honor and pleasure working with you throughout this past year on this documentary. Yeah, man, it has been a ton of fun. We have traveled all over the United States. We have produced six one-hour episodes. Not many people can say they've made essentially a television show season, and we have. Isn't that correct, Corey? In such a short amount of time as well. And to see the things that we saw, I mean, I've I've barely been like outside of Georgia before, so this was... A really big deal for me, but I also wasn't uh, prepared for how much it was actually going to change my perspective on the actual premise of this documentary, which, Morgan, I'm going to send it right back to you. Tell us a little bit, what is the After Hours Club? What is the premise of the show, and what are you hoping to present to the audience? Okay, well, what we're doing on the show is we're taking an in-depth look at all aspects of death in America. And by death, I mean everything from the funeral industry, embalming, cemeteries, and people who work in funeral homes, to crime and death. We're looking at, uh, in one episode, we do look at sexual tie-ins to death. But we also delve into topics like hospice care. We spend an entire episode on hospice care. And there are a lot of myths and misconceptions that we blow open about what hospice really is in America and what it can be if it's done properly. We take some cultural tie-ins, too, like uh, we take an in-depth look at vampires, Mm -hmm. and we also uh, 
to highlight some fun things, like we went to the Museum of Death in both New Orleans and Los Angeles, and we went to a cute little shop called Obscura, and it's uh, based in New York City. And it was actually the subject of a television show called Oddities. Yeah, that one was really cool because sometimes, you know, you go places and these people aren't used to, like, being on camera or don't really know how to present what they do in a quick, like, five-minute soundbite. But these people, since they had a television show, they were like, oh, that's all the equipment you brought? You know, like, Mm -hmm. they were, like, used to seeing full-blown television studios. They were saying how everyone was putting, like, special films over the windows so, like, they wouldn't blow out. And they were talking. They were so used to production. They were, like, a breeze to work with and also really good on camera. So that Mm -hmm. was, like, a whole different thing. You know, let's actually talk about that shop for a while because that shop, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, Obscura. Obscura. It's called Obscura Antiques and Oddities. Antiques and Oddities. They essentially sell I don't know how to describe it. They sell They sell antiques and oddities. But what is an oddity? How would you describe like an oddity, Corey? I don't know. And, like they had so much strange stuff in there. They had like uh they had human remains. They had uh dummies, ventriloquist dummies, which were really creepy. But they like had, from the twenties. Uh, they had like a two headed cow, you know, one that one that had been stuffed. It was just all types of weird curios and things. The best way to uh, to equate obscure for me personally, I got kind of this like Ripley's Believe It or Not vibe from the entire place. If, you, if, if you've ever been to one of those museums before, it just has sort of that like, you know, it's not all macabre, but th- but there are elements to it that are a little strange or odd, or at least to, you know, I would, standard yeah. I would like take it back to like a 1920s freak show. It's yeah. kind of, a little without, bit, yeah. but without like the humans in it, without yeah. the, the bearded lady and the strong man. And one everything. of right. us. One of yeah, us. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, had to yeah, I actually is... don't know what that reference is from, Corey. I'm so sorry. <laughs> is that from Bubble Boy? No, it's <laughs> this is a subject for a whole nother podcast yeah. altogether. Uh, it's from an old movie called like Freaks, I believe, or Freak Show, or something around those lines. But uh, getting back to Obscura, uh, Morgan, why did you want to take us to this place? Why did this fit in this documentary? Well, one reason is because I'm a huge fan of the show they did for Discovery and the Science Channel, which was called Oddities, is part of their title. And uh, this place actually does deal in uh, not exclusively, obviously, but it does sell human remains. And people will go into a place like this. It's like you're going to a knick-knack shop to buy something for the coffee table. Well, this is a really out-of-the-way knick-knack shop. And, and when you think about, do I really want to buy a preserved human hand and put it on my coffee table? In my case, the answer is yes. I'm not sure what my two cats would do with it or where it would end up. but um, Under the but, fridge. Yeah, probably under the <laughs> fridge, along with 50 stuffed mice and God only knows what else. Oh, man. But, um, but, but this was a good store because I think it just kind of shows how people can, not in a salacious way, but how you can profit off of death, how even human remains can be sold. And it's, uh, and it's legally done. They, they abide by very strict guidelines, but it's done legally. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Talking about one of the other cool shops we went to, the Museum of Death. Talk about profiting from death. You essentially have these two museums uh, on either side of the United States. Are there two or three? They're building a third. They're That's building what... a third. They've got one in New Orleans, one mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, and the third's going to be in Seattle. Yeah. Talk about profiting from death. These are previous art dealers who have got their hands on serial killer memorabilia, uh, mass death events in, throughout the United States. They had some uh, some like weird footage of... Uh, the JFK assassination that they had accumulated with a like a big thing that shows where JFK was shot and all the kind of conspiracy theory around it, kind of just the lore around the Kennedy assassination. They had old autopsy videos playing. They were essentially 
and I don't mean it in a negative way, but profiting off this death exhibit, which they had accumulated. Right. And it was like really intense. Like mm-hmm. I was like, oh, let's walk in. Oh, there's a gift shop. And there's a picture of a guy who's dead after being run over by a semi. Okay, right. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does get, it does get a little gruesome. They had shrunken heads, mm-hmm. actual shrunken heads. And, uh, clothing that people were wearing when they were executed. So it's a little macabre, but what it does do is it helps people get a little bit comfortable with death, I think, in a way, kind of playing footsie with death. Mm -hmm. So if you go in there and you look at it and you maybe get a little more familiar with what is involved in death and dying, which is a big part of why we did this documentary, because a lot of people don't know a lot about what goes on with death and dying in the United States. Like, after you die, what happens to your body? And people think they know. But they don't really know what goes on during an embalming, for example. Yeah, the whole embalming thing was really eye-opening for me. Like, I'll tell you what my thoughts were on embalming before. Not that I even really had an opinion, but it was you die, and then they clean your body, and I guess they preserve you somehow. I knew that happened. I didn't know how it happened. And then you look really good because they put makeup and cut your hair and your fingernails, and they clean you all up, and then your your family looks at you, and then you go in the hole. But there is a lot going on within bombing. There like, definitely is. They essentially take a giant needle that's like half an inch thick and it, that has a vacuum suction attached to it and just suck out your guts by sticking you a lot with it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> they basically, they, they scramble your insides. They do, and they suck it down the drain, and um, your internal organs basically are shredded, and, but most of them end up in the sewer. <laughs> I mean, I hate to, I hate to, I hate to be very blunt, but but that is what happens. They essentially an just make you a hollow shell, and then they pump a bunch of liquid into your veins, and then you're preserved for a week or two, you know, yeah. and then without any decay. Obviously, a normal human body would sit there fine for like four days and then start to decay, but like an embalmed body will go like two weeks and some change. Yeah, you know. So, it's and sort of, I'm glad you brought that up that the body can sit there for you know three or four days without decaying because as long as actually, the temperature's not too hot right as long as you know it's it's one thing to do it and say the things oh, you learn in, the more in, you know in, in ohio <laughs> in in the fall as opposed to arizona in the summer but we actually interviewed people about home funerals and that is a trend that's growing in the united states where people don't take the loved one to a funeral home after they've passed they actually care for them in their own home mm-hmm. and there's a viewing in the home there are some problems obviously because various states have different regulations about transport a dead body, so how do you get it from your home? Got to get to, this body upstate. Yeah, to, to yeah, upstate to to wherever you're going to dispose of the body, and by dispose, I mean hopefully properly bury it. Well, you know, let's paint a picture for people back. Like even let's go to the 1800s, right? Back then, people were hunting more. They were gathering their own resources more. Uh, there wasn't a network for funeral homes back then, so essentially you would clean the body at your house if someone you knew or your family member died and you would get them ready for death and then you would probably dig the hole along with someone that works at a a, a cemetery Mm -hmm. and then you would put them in it. It was all you, you know, like you and your family did it. And that sounds extremely foreign nowadays. Yeah. Extremely foreign. But that really wasn't even that long ago. That was when you really think about 150 it. years ago when people rode horses to get around, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound that long ago. It's like one and a half grandmas. That's how mm-hmm. I always explain time. <laughs> one and a half grandma. You know, one yeah. lifetime, one and a half lifetimes, you know, ago. It wasn't even that long ago. Mm-hmm. 
No. So, yeah, the funeral home industry that we learned about uh, getting away from embalming and going towards funeral homes, a lot of people don't like funeral homes because they think they're profit centers where they prey on people. And absolutely, people have done exposés on, yeah. you know, the, the preying upon people who are emotionally damaged. You know, mm-hmm. they come in. They're like, oh, you want the basic model for your family member. I guess you don't love grandma, you know, and they upsell them on a high end cabinet for their loved one. Coffin, I mean, not cabinet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you could use it as a, as a cabinet prior yeah. to the person's death. Yeah. I, suppose. I mean, you know, you put some handles on it, yeah. some good hardware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. It, it, typically, basically, what you're saying is like a lot of people somewhat view these funeral industries as say a lawyer who's chasing after an ambulance, They're right. looking for that easy sell. Yeah. yeah. And, the uh, one and, it's, and while there are people who do do that, it's mm-hmm. it's it's not necessarily the case. And we definitely saw that when we went to uh, Louisiana and we went to Delgado College mm-hmm. and we yeah. got to spend time with this classroom and we got to see all of these young students who were learning to become like funeral directors and embalmers and everything. And it's amazingly fascinating, to be perfectly honest. And and that's what I think is the, the, the strongest point of this documentary is while the subject matter itself may be considered taboo, it's something that I think people generally want to learn about and know about. I mean, inquiring minds want to know about this type of thing. It's just due to the actual subject matter, it's kind of hard to just talk about in the open or, you know, just, you know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, your friends saying this stuff out loud. But, right. You know, we, we've lived it for the last year, so for us it's kind of become a part of us, but we've also learned to truly respect it as well. And, and that's what this uh, whole documentary is about as well. That and the fact that it's also a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, we had some great times on this trip. Yeah, we definitely well, did. I mean, we went to New Orleans and got smashed can I say mm-hmm. that? I'm yes. Say after, that. Yes. It was a, well, a celebration well, after work. We were yes. not drunk while it was, filming. It yeah. was a celebration, bitches. It, <laughs> the point is that we had a really good time on this trip as mm-hmm. well as made a really rock-solid documentary. That's the other thing I want to say as early as I can in this podcast with you guys. Like, This is, no joke, six really good episodes of a documentary that covers subject matter that I don't see covered all that often or at all from our perspective. And that is hard to do with documentaries because there are so many of them. Anyone who even has a Netflix subscription can watch hours and hours of documentaries that are all really well done. And I think the one we've created with you, Morgan, Mm -hmm. is right up there in quality. And it's because we have done very little other than focus on this documentary, especially you, you know, being the writer and the executive (laughs) producer and one of the talents in the documentary, you know, you really put the last year of your life into this on a very high level. And I think the whole product is going to show. And that's why we're so excited to make a whole podcast just about this, because we really want to make sure uh, our audience can get over the hump of understanding this is a documentary about death and that may weird you out and it may be a little too real for you when we first explain it to you, but I promise if you give it a shot, you'll really learn a lot and you might really enjoy the ride too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, let, let's talk about like the origins of this project. Like when, when did this idea conceptualize for you? Like when did you know this is the type of series that I wanted to make? Well, I've always kind of had a dark bent. You know, when I was a kid growing up, all the other kids were looking forward to the high school football game on Friday nights or maybe going to see the Browns play on Sunday. I grew up in Cleveland and I was the one who was getting excited about the Midnight Horror Show. And that kind of carried through out throughout my entire adult life. And I'd always wanted to do something death related. I worked in journalism for 25 years. But every time I brought up stories like this, they were kind of poo pooed away that was like, well, you know, our audience doesn't really want to hear about this. So, you know, it's interesting, but but no, no, thanks. 
And finally, last year, late last year, uh, I found myself in a position to be able to do a long-term project. And I wanted it to be something that had impact. I wanted it to be something that's relevant. And you can't get much more relevant than death because death is going to come for us all. And I wanted it to be something which could be not just educational, but maybe even enlightening to uh, the people who are going to see it. And I thought death would be great. I knew I couldn't do a film because when I started listing all the topics that I wanted to cover, it became clear you couldn't do that in 90 minutes, not even two hours. So I figured a series was the only way to go. Yeah, I think it made sense when you originally told me, and especially with the rise of episodic content now being such a strong medium, I was like, yeah, like a six-part or five-part documentary series seems like right in line. You know, we'll take the first episode, we'll establish the premise, and then we'll just keep throwing in new topics within that idea that we built with the first episode. And we had a really good time. Do you mind if I, uh, or do you want to read off the episode titles just so people can kind of understand? What or maybe we, might... we just go by an episode by episode basis yeah, to sort kinda... of explain like what each one's going to be about. Yeah. yeah, but not in too detailed. We want to leave some surprise there for you guys. Exactly. Because there are some really powerful, one, emotional moments, and two, I think, educational moments that I think we've made a strong breakthrough if you give these documentaries a good watch all the way through. So the first episode, Into into That Good Night, Funerals, Cemeteries, and Embalming. I think we've sort of touched on this one in some mm, ways because yeah. went to New Orleans. Uh, went went all twice. Over, we went to New Orleans twice. Mm-hmm. We drove all over Georgia. We watched someone do a fake embalming on a medical dummy. Uh, and I immediately realized, when, I, I think I need to say this, when, when we were making this, I was like, oh, this is going to like – test who I am as a human being like this is going to force me to look at my morality or, or not morality uh mortality and do you feel that way Corey when you were a like- little bit I mean I was intimidated by the subject matter of the documentary when we first started because I just I didn't quite know what to expect or what I was going to see or even hear um but I'm glad that I did it I, th- I think it made me grow as a person and it made me appreciate uh all aspects of death at this point um and that's what I really hope is going to be the takeaway for a lot of the people who actually watch this documentary is that they're going to stop looking at it as something that's dark and something they need to shy away from, but something that we, we all have to deal with eventually in our lives. And no matter where you're from, no matter what your religion is, your beliefs, we're all going to have to face it. And that's what this moment was for me. It was like facing death, finally. Yeah, and the other thing is everyone's like, oh, I'm not scared of death. Or I hear people not when I introduce this topic, they tell me how they feel about death. That's one of Mm -hmm. the things I usually ask. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm not worried. And I don't think they're not worried. They just have put in zero thought about it. We are very separated from death in this society. Mm -hmm. You know, and a large part of that goes back to we don't take care of our dead anymore, but people don't really understand what it means to die. And I think we do cover this in one of the episodes, too. I think there is a level of desensitization going on because we see so much death and violence in, in just about every media outlet, films, television, anime, books, you know, it, it's there. And we're so familiar with it that we don't understand it. It's like kind of when you become familiar with a person, really familiar with a person, and you start taking them for granted and not necessarily seeing all the complexities they have. I think that's how, what our relationship with death has become like in this country. I think it's kind of like war, too. And mm-hmm. I don't mean death is anything really like war, but I mean like you can play a war video game. You can go shoot a gun. You can go train with uh, someone in, in militaristic ways. But until you go to war, you really don't know what war is about. 
you know so you can talk about death you can da 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 but until you go see you can go see death in in game of thrones on video games and any medium you like that's on television nowadays or like anime like Corey and i enjoy but until you really experience a family member dying or see death in real life like you do not understand what it's about and yeah. i think that was one of the and it's not a scary thing it's just a real thing and i think a lot of people haven't uh, dealt with that or they're like oh yeah it's not that big a deal I guarantee it's because you haven't put much thought into it right you know or maybe you have truly come to peace with it which is one of the other things I felt like I saw a lot of people that actually had come to terms with what the adventure you know the eventuality of life is you know mm -hmm. so yeah that was definitely a common theme a lot of the people we talked to because of the fields they work in you know these are we pursued people who were intimately involved with death on a daily basis, not just people who would, you know, had one or two people die in their life. These are people who choose this as a profession by and large. Yeah, so they're surrounded by it all the time, which takes us to episode two. Mm -hmm. That darkly shining abyss, death in media. Did yeah. I say that title right? Yeah, you did. Yeah. That darkly shining abyss. What is that from? That You told me that was from something. That That is from uh, a I don't want to know whether it's called the book. It's it's something called the Chaldean Oracles. And the entire line goes, stoop not down, therefore, unto that darkly shining abyss. And it's saying, don't go to those dark places because, you know, you will degrade yourself. And that's a large part of what we talk about in the first half of that episode is how we've become not only intimately involved with death and maybe desensitized to it, but we go into places where people are turned on by death. We mm -hmm. go into death fetishes. Uh some are related to sexual activity, like autoerotic asphyxiation, but others are actually into people watching other people die, getting off on it somehow at death fantasies, but also real life death, because we found that on the internet. Yeah, real life death is not hard to find. Like, I didn't have actually as much to do with that segment. Corey didn't either, because Corey and I, we realized up front that like, hey man, we don't want to uh, watch people die on the internet because it's not super hard to find. Yeah. You know, like you, you pulled up some, you did a little research and then came into the office one day and you're like, here's the websites I found. Yeah, uh, and I could tell. I was yeah. like, okay, oh, I'm yeah. pushing the boundaries so, here. So. <laughs> so yeah, you and the editor just worked one-on-one -on, -one on that yeah. segment, which is pretty brutal, but we also, it doesn't show much. We, we made yeah. sure to cut out the stuff. It just uh, drives the point home that it's not hard to find. Mind, which is the point of that segment but uh also dr deviant um and uh, his colleague that we yep. met they were interesting dudes who they were who is who is a professor yes a professor a, at idaho state university he gets paid to talk about whipping yeah. people which yeah. is an insane job mm -hmm. i cannot believe that's a job <laughs> yeah it is well but he also um one of the reasons we brought him in is because he also has an interesting theory about what motivates serial killers that is true yeah he did uh, like it was, uh, they like the challenge, or what was his his sort of outlook on? Well, that? he looks at it as they are pursuing Something to do it on Sunday as a you know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he, it's he's calling it deviant leisure, mm -hmm. and he's his premise is that the same excitement that you or I might get from bowling or going out golfing or doing a competitive sports activity, for example, there are different levels of pleasure that we all get from recreational activities. And he's saying that serial killers get the same thing, except they're getting it from killing people the same way someone else would go out and do competitive skiing, for example. The serial killers are getting the same adrenaline rush, the killer's high, from going out and murdering people. Yeah, essentially, uh, they enjoy the activity like it's a 
passionate hobby essentially yeah you know and it's it's sort of it's sort of dark but it's interesting that there's people who their whole profession is to study the mindset of some of our darkest elements of society yeah and that's why they were interesting to talk to but i think one of the strongest people we met in the sense of being a character was definitely uh joseph scott morgan Right. Yes, Death Invader, uh, Death Investigator Joseph Scott Morgan, Death Invader, who we got to spend a lot of time with this guy. Um, we got to visit him a couple of times, and he's clearly who seen... is he? Like, what is he? He's a Death Investigator. Like, what is some of his like background that we learned about Corey? I mean, we we do know that he's a he's an author, he's a professor, um, but his previous career was as a death investigator, and uh, I believe at the time he was the youngest in the country. Mm-hmm. He was uh, when the he youngest a death investigator. Yeah, it was. It's a specific field called medical legal death investigation, mm-hmm. which is uh, basically these are the people who come out to crime scenes. So he did that for a number of years. He worked for medical examiners' offices in New Orleans and in Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, and then. Um, Eventually, though, it got to him. Mm-hmm. It got to him very severely. Yeah, he essentially uh, suffered PTSD and got forcefully court-ordered, removed from the career. Mm-hmm. And his story has some high points and some low points and is a roller coaster of a ride. And I'm glad we got to talk to him. So I hope you guys check out that interview in episode two. Yeah. And uh, that is some intense stuff. But also... He is a fun guy to hang out he with. He is. Yes, yeah. he is. He's like, like we got done with the interviews. Like, okay, I'm going home and uh, gonna play some Call of Duty. See you guys later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was like our first yeah. impression of him too. Yeah, yeah. he. Like, and, oh, oh, this guy's awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, he introduced us to some of the best barbecue in Alabama. Yeah. I do, I do yeah. want to make slung, one slight correction. When he he left the medical examiner's office, um, he did so because he did have. Uh, breakdown and he was diagnosed with PTSD well he never he never got to the point where he had to be court ordered oh well, just I, just, his, I thought it was his like therapist or someone yeah said, his therapist said that she would go and prevent him from going back if uh-huh. she had to but he actually willingly oh, uh, didn't go back yeah okay. it never reached those levels but that's when it hit home to him that what am I going to do you yeah, know, because, because that was that his was, whole identity. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was it. He was the youngest. Uh, the good thing is, though, that when, when he had to stop being a death investigator, though, he didn't have to abandon everything that he learned. Right. And he was able to actually take everything that he experienced and teach it to a new generation of people who want to be in the same exact field as him. And he's a fantastic teacher. That's another mm-hmm. thing. Not yeah. only can you just have a great conversation with this guy, he can command a classroom. Like, we were there just, you know, we were catching some B-roll of the classroom, him interacting with everybody, and I was getting sucked into his lecture. Yeah. I thought it was genuinely very interesting. And then right after that, he's like, all right, boys, let's go get some barbecue. Mm. Like, he's just, he's just such a classic guy. Yeah. Classic Southerner. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's a good Southern dude, and also just a a well-balanced human being, even though he can go and tell you some of the darkest stories you've ever heard. And we have a few previews of his stories on our promos on the website, which is the AfterHoursClub.tv. Yeah, it's AfterHoursClubTV. Oh, AfterHoursClubTV. Dot TV. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to, again, guys, put all the links on our YouTube video and uh, on our uh, Rogue Intel page Mm -hmm. and everything else. So definitely go check it out there. Uh, Also, if you guys are interested about checking out uh, Joseph Scott Morgan's book, it's called Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death uh, Investigator. It's a really great read, um, but just be warned, it does have um, some very graphic imagery, not only in the text, but actually with some actual uh, pictures that are in the book. So uh, be prepared for that. And that goes for this documentary as well. There are going to be some instances where some of the imagery might be a little intense. We do give you warnings before that does happen, so just be prepared for that. Yeah, it's... The episode two is 
probably one of the heavier emotional rides, I feel mm-hmm. like. Like, it would affect the most amount of people. Like, if 100 people watched, I think they'd say episode two was one of the most impactful episodes. Yeah. We go and uh, attack your senses in positive ways, too, with a lot of good positive stories. One of the things, now that we're wrapping up this project uh, and switching into the promotional side of things, there's a lot of positivity in this in this thing, mm-hmm. in this series. Like, so many times when I'm trying to explain this... It's a documentary about death, and then everyone stops listening. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There's a right. lot of positive here. There's a lot of ups and downs. This is a real, this is a real journey. This is not a slog through negative Sadville. You right. Know? Like there's exactly. good stuff in here, and uh, that actually is my transition in episode three, uh, Angels Among Us Hospice. Yeah. Which is a really powerful episode when we explore the hospice system, and uh, where did we go for that one? We went to Cleveland uh, to an organization called Hospice of the Western Reserve, which mm-hmm. operates a few facilities in the Cleveland area. My own father was treated in hospice through them. Mm-hmm. My mother as well, although she died before she could leave the hospital and actually get to one of their inpatient facilities. But uh, that experience, which kind of also prompted me the deaths of my parents, was one of the motivating factors because it. Had happened within the space of a year between 2016 and early this year in early January when my mom passed kind of spurred me to want to do this documentary but the care that my dad got at hospice of the western reserve was remarkable and when i found out everything they do and how they treat their patients and what you can actually accomplish through hospice care in terms of improving quality of life Mm -hmm. for those whose lives are now measured in months rather than in years it impressed me and i thought people should know about this people should understand that hospice is not a place where you go to die yeah, hospice to me was a wing in a hospital where mm-hmm. people just sat and died. Yeah. You know, it felt like it was going to be a medical institution uh, and it was just going to be blank white halls with sad, sanitary, clean rooms that were all white and medical feeling. Mm-hmm. But hospice of the Western Reserve was almost like a resort. Yeah. Like they made it very like a giant cabin in the woods kind of vibe. You know, it had a very warm, inviting, big windows, natural light everywhere, gardens to walk in. Uh, everything was wheelchair accessible. So a family member could come and put their loved one in a wheelchair and walk them all over the grounds without mm-hmm. assistance from medical staff there. You know, like they can be independent there. Uh People leave there and go yeah. on to live a few more years. Like yeah. they are promoting healthy happy living right and it's it's usually i mean it's uh unusual for someone to to live more than a few months after they've been given the terminal diagnosis but what absolutely but what happens with this is that sometimes people will need the hospice care for a little bit but as you mentioned they can they can actually that gives the body a chance to recuperate and to rest and then they can actually leave the hospice facility and go back home we uh did meet some people who that had actually happened to which was which was great yeah you know it's funny uh i remember there have been a few times in my life that i've had to go to the hospital for family members and other things and i always remember when i was young my dad told me every time you go to the hospital no matter how sad you are no matter how sad it looks, you always be super positive to everyone that you're seeing in the hospital because they need to think everything's great. Right. Because the better they think everything is, the better chance they have of getting better because positivity can really help you. I and mean, a good mindset can really help you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're down and depressed and sleeping all day, it's not going to help your healing. You know? No. And so, uh, but that's the thing that the Hospice of the Western Reserve does so well. They just keep a 
upbeat attitude there and a bright, happy, non-clinical feeling kind of thing. They even hide the oxygen machines behind pictures and stuff right. like that because they don't even want you seeing that when you walk in. Mm-hmm. They want no medical apparatus around. Yeah. And on top of that, they're a nonprofit, which I don't even understand how that works, but I'm very impressed with their whole operation. Yeah, that was the thing that got me. What about you, Corey, though? you Because you had an interview with the pet therapist there. I did. Um, Corey the just about, sat around pet dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an easy life, guys. Um, the thing about hospices, uh, my knowledge of hospice care was basically zero when we went into this thing. I was just like, oh, that mean, a hospice. I guess that means uh, someone who's close to dying is going to get a bed that's going to raise up slightly. That's mm-hmm. like my whole knowledge of what a hospice was. But I was really taken aback when we actually went to these places and got to see, as Christian said, they're very much like a resort. They hide all the medical stuff. They really try to make you feel as calm and comfortable as humanly possible. And what really struck me the most is not so much that they also uh, help the, the people who are under care, but they go out of their way to help the families as well. Right. Even after the person has passed, they will continuously try to help the family during the grieving process and uh, be with them the entire time. And that's really commendable. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually willing to say at this point of the episodes that we do have complete, the hospice episode is my favorite episode. I think it's handled so well. It's got great subject matter. It's incredibly educational, especially for those who are looking for this type of care. And uh, the ending of the episode, which I don't want to give away or anything, I think is one of the most powerful things uh, that we've ever filmed or even created. Yeah. And just I loved every second of being a part of that project. And I was really very kind of intimidated by doing that episode because this was the one that like we just got done doing all these travels and partying we just went to la and new mm-hmm. orleans and now we're going to cleveland to a hospice for a week <laughs> yes. and it was just like oh man, this, this is gonna week. be a we, every yeah. day we're like all right guys just mentally prepare yourselves this next week's mm-hmm. gonna be kind of rough there's probably gonna be some tears we're gonna have to really just soldier through it and the entire time, like, I was just so impressed by the care and everything that they did there. Yeah, just I mean... really, if, there, if there's one episode that people need to see, I think it is that one. Yeah, I think what you were saying about having to prepare ourselves, even I did, even though I'd lived through the experience. But, uh, you know, I think a big part of that was it was Cleveland. So that's where I actually had to say, okay, I've got to psych myself up and get ready <laughs> yeah. for this day. I mean, you were going home, though, so... Y- yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was the first time I've been to Cleveland. I liked Cleveland. I mean, you I saw... Mean, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's nothing really against it now. No. But. I mean, say, uh, reminds me of Georgia in many ways. <laughs> it's flat Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, we got a lot of hills. We actually do have a lot of hills right outside the metro area. Oh, so. that's true. That's true. Yeah, uh, nice. <laughs> I, I think the hospice one was obviously an emotional roller coaster for me because we, we met a few people who unfortunately aren't here anymore, mm-hmm. which is going to be a reality. You go yeah. interview people in hospice care. You better get that documentary out fast because if you want them to see it, you got to release it quickly. And a few of them didn't make it to when we release this, but their families will see it. Yeah, and I'm sure they're going to love that we helped preserve people's memories. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, they in are, their stories. Yeah, and that's the important thing: their stories, because the stories are how you can actually have a fulfilling end of life at home. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know the specific circumstances of where I don't where want to the, give away the name yeah. or the person and all the, that. The jazz. people. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I don't know the specific circumstances surrounding that person's demise, but um, but I do know that the patients that we interviewed were very positive uh, and very upbeat. And uh, that kind of gives you an idea of what a difference it can make to actually be treated at home. Well, you don't have to be in a facility. 
The other thing is, I think the hospice one uh, secretly affected me more than the upfront ones that would affect me. You know, mm-hmm. like watching the funeral th- stuff or seeing the stories from Joseph Scott Morgan. You know, like that stuff is the obviously one. But like going there and seeing people in a sad place and um, seeing the reality and the eventuality of death in these people's lives. I think I came home really affected from the hospice. Like uh, my fiance just wanted to chit chat about things that I'll be honest, seemed extremely fucking trivial Mm -hmm. after seeing all that. Like I wanted to be like, that's what you want to talk about tonight. Like you want to get upset about the, TV shows and stuff like I was like we got to do something with our lives right now yeah. you know, like it can be over in any minute and uh, I, I was very you know in my head for a few days after we got back from that one I realized that I was much more affected and emotionally out of whack after that that trip especially because uh, the the museums and everything are scary and sad but they're still not human you know they're yeah. not human in their stories you know the the documentation is there the history it's all documented but seeing a person and then knowing they're not there anymore is the difference you know yeah. like that's there, there's a lot of human interaction and connection there that is just lost in the history books version that we saw in some of the other episodes so yeah i have to admit i was i was very concerned about you guys the whole trip and i just wanted uh, to the hospice and i just wanted to make sure that you were okay i knew it would affect all of us oh yeah and it did Ab- but um Absolutely. You know, I know you're resilient. So. Yeah, well, yeah. It, I think it just took a week or two to get out of the funk and get back mm-hmm. into the rhythm of our lives, which we have established here in Georgia. So we were yeah. lucky to, you know, be busy with our production company and other things going on. So we just stayed focused, kept our nose down, and got out of that funk. But I'm just saying, like, there was a noticeable yeah. moment there for me after coming back um, and uh, having to grab the people in my life and say, hey, I'm not going to be normal right now and you need to be okay with that and let me get back to normal. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people, it took a second for them to understand that. But yeah, and that was uh, one of my probably favorite episodes that we've seen, uh, that I've seen completed so far. There's a few more we're still working on. The last two are still definitely in the post-production schedule, but will be out this year. But uh, episode uh, three, Angels Among Us Hospice is going to be a really, yeah. really good one. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend you guys check that one out. Let's move on to episode four. Wait, did we? Have we talked about episode four yet? No, we no, haven't. Here we are. We just, yeah. Corey, wh- why don't you intro that episode? Episode four, Through a Mirror Darkly, non-mainstream religion. We actually just got done looking at this episode recently, and um, this is a really interesting episode, I think, uh, for different cultures and for people who uh, practice different religions because we get to see how they view death, and we get to go as far as looking at voodoo culture, looking at uh, Tibetan monks, uh, we even got to learn about a religion that I had n- I had no knowledge of, known as uh, Santa Muerte, um, and just this one. I think I'm not really sure how to put this one yet. What I really love about this episode was just getting to see how each and every single culture views death and how they actually deal with it at the end of the day, because um, they're all so different. And uh, some of them, while on the surface might seem kind of scary or strange, like voodoo. Uh, just because of the actual nature of it. Um, my biggest takeaway from learning about it is that it's not that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, if anything, voodoo culture is one of the most peaceful religions that I've ever seen. Voodoo culture got so messed up. Um, I know you know so much more about this, but I think our perspectives is, are important too because we didn't know much about voodoo right. mm-hmm. starting mm-hmm. this project. Voodoo to me, what do you think about voodoo dolls? 
uh, a weird lady that's in front of a fire throwing chicken bones down, saying things to gods that we don't understand anything about. You know, like that's what voodoo is in my head before we started this project. Mm-hmm. But really, it's it's a very straightforward religion. It's not a crazy religion. It just has a flair to it. Oh, a, yeah. <laughs> a visual flair that I think throws people off. Yeah. The, the, one of the coolest stories, which I cannot exactly say if this is historical fact, but I remember um, one of the people we talked to told us that voodoo dolls are not anything to do with hurting a person. They were medical record keepers. So what would happen is you'd go to the doctor and they'd say, hey, doctor, my knee hurts. So he would take a doll and write your name on it. And then he would put a needle in your knee. So next time you came back, he'd pull out your voodoo doll and say, oh, how's that knee doing? I see I took a record of that because people didn't some people didn't write and read back then. Mm-hmm. So to do that, they would just take a doll, put a needle in the knee and say, OK, that's the area I treated last time. So next time you come in, we'll pull out his doll and see, you know, it's mm-hmm. like essentially your visual medical records, you know, like a old school X-ray or something, you know. But then someone thought you know as the old world became the new world they must have twisted it around and they're like oh that witch doctor over there is poking my knee and that's why my knee hurts no your knee hurt before you came to him man you just you know like you're connecting dots that aren't there and so that's how the formation of voodoo dolls came out and i just found most of the voodoo people we met were super cool and that's one of the other big themes is that all these people we met are not crazy people they're just people that have chosen this way to live their life you know like everyone's trying to figure out their way to live life and these people just chose a different path that most people don't go down but they're not monsters or weirdos they're just people that have chosen this one area of their life where they're going to do things this way right and uh that doesn't make them any different than anyone else. No. And so. on behalf of the voodoo community, I appreciate you speaking nicely mm-hmm. about us because that is part of the show too, mm-hmm. is my own involvement that that voodoo is my religion. So uh, I'm not afraid to talk about it. And obviously if I'm, I'm putting it on, out on the documentary and that, but uh, I'm glad that you guys felt that way. At least that you were able to see both through my example and hopefully the people we met too, that, mm-hmm. you know, that this is really just a religion in and of itself. It's not the Hollywood hype that people think about. Yeah. Once I heard that voodoo doll story, I was like, oh, this is just people spinning voodoo into something mm-hmm. bad. But also New Orleans, I'll be honest, hijacked voodoo for tourists. Yes. Tourism. Mm-hmm. It you sure know? did. They, they've, they, there's a voodoo shop on every main tourist street, you know, mm-hmm. you can get. I mean, I mean, what the tiki culture is, the Polynesian culture, <laughs> yeah. the voodoo culture is what it is for New Orleans. Yeah. It's, like, it's just a big poster. Yeah. It's a big poster, a big a gift shop, if you will, of mm-hmm. crap to buy mm-hmm. that actually a lot of it probably doesn't have any legitimate voodoo meaning. Yeah. And uh, I found the voodoo people to be just easily explain what they do and show you what they do. And yes, there is some visual flair to it, you know, like the shrines and things Mm -hmm. like that, but there's not, any there's no sacrificing things or killing yeah. goats or well, bleeding out oh there is some of that there but, but we don't yeah we don't necessarily do it that that often that's okay. the, that's that's the big thing it 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 does happen and and not everybody does it the one priestess we interviewed does not she she's will a not, vegan voodoo practitioner right so there are no blood sacrifices in her temple she does and cut the throats of cucumbers though and bleed them out over her shrines no i'm kidding yeah I, I don't know <laughs> i'm not sure there may be maybe yeah. she uses a juicer that, that would be much yeah, more way to get the, the yeah well out. i kind of yeah, i mean those things are so loud it's like listening to the shuttle take off when you start a good high-grade juicer so oh god <laughs> kind of ruin the atmosphere with the drums the chants and then <laughs> Corey, what do you think of the voodoo the people? magic bullet that's all i'm thinking of 
That's all I'm thinking of right now. <laughs> Set it and um, forget it. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just all the voodoo culture in New Orleans and everything, I thought it was very striking and uh, and very fun. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for voodoo culture now. More so right. than I ever had before. And also you can <laughs> see the connection. I mean, Catholicism goes way back you know, yeah. to the beginning of Christianity in some right. ways. Uh, and uh, voodoo goes way back to when slaves came to the United States mm-hmm. because essentially they had to hide their religion inside Christianity to keep it going. And then it sort of morphed into its own thing. Pretty much. And so that's sort of a weird, not so long ago history mm-hmm. of that, that religion and easily traceable back. So when people are like, oh, that's some weird thing, I'd be like, honestly, your religion's way older and weirder. It doesn't have all the visual things. Yeah. Or the animal sacrifice sort of built into it. But it's not... It's not easily looked at. You but know, it does like, come with free crackers and wine. Yes. Or donuts and coffee afterwards if you right. go to that church. <laughs> that, is, that is true. <laughs> Voodoo does not have the donuts and coffee, unfortunately. It does not, but I will say when there are animal sacrifices, the, the blood is only offered, and then the animal is actually cooked afterwards. But so, the barbecue so is great. Nothing yeah, goes to say, waste. Nothing goes to waste, and you can get some jambalaya, which I will put against a dry little wafer and some watered-down wine any day. Boom. It's boom. If that's not if that's not a, a sell for voodoo culture, I don't know what is. So <laughs> food culture. But uh, let's go ahead and move on to episode five. This is one that I'm really looking forward to seeing. It's called This Mortar Coil Death in Culture. This is gonna involve stuff that's like vampires. Uh, we're going back to the Obscura Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to the Gathering of Nations, which was a amazingly powerful mm-hmm. event when we were one in New of Mexico. Life changing event. In and some we ways. did actually talk about this briefly on a podcast months ago about just going to New Mexico for the first time and, and witnessing this just amazing gathering of all of these like different Native American tribes coming together and getting to see them all like on a floor together and dancing and singing and uh, just you know showing off all the various aspects of their culture something about that moment really shocked me to my core I was just like this is amazing right here what we were witnessing this you know when people think America Red, white, and blue. A chick with giant freaking boobs shooting guns into the air. Two no. <laughs> The Gathering of Nations, that was America right there. Yeah. Encapsulated perfectly in that moment. And it was just, it was a great moment for me personally. Yeah, you don't really understand Native American culture until you see it up close mm-hmm. like that. And what opportunity do you have to see all those different tribes come together showing off the, their uh, old way of life but at the same time you would see them taking selfies yeah and that is just the funniest <laughs> juxtaposition to me yeah. i know it's it's modern i mean these people aren't fucking living in the woods you know right. they're modern people that drive cars have houses and all that stuff but they pay homage to their roots mm-hmm. and they're you know they're obviously if i don't know if they're full-blooded indian but they're, pro- they're they look mostly indian mm-hmm. you know mostly native american and it was just cool being that close to the culture right and being like in the vicinity of the whole thing and it was like we were in a stadium and they were doing their dancing and their chanting and playing their traditional instruments and doing the traditional dances and in the traditional costumes which looked expensive as hell yeah and Corey and i have seen amazing cosplay up close yeah, <laughs> and I'm not trying to convince, c- c- compare their costumes or their outfits to cosplay, but what I'm saying is, 
we have a, a perspective on the dedication and commitment it takes to make a costume mm-hmm. and an outfit. Mm-hmm. And these people have obviously put that in. Right. You know? And when you consider that so much of the work, you have to get up close to see the fine detailing. You know, this isn't that you can just go down to Joanne Fabrics or something and, and buy the cloth. Although I'm, I'm sure you can get some of what they were wearing in their regalia there. But, you know, you, you actually have to have the leather and you have to know how to work the leather and you have to be able to do the beadwork. It's, it's very labor intensive. They are very tiny. They're using tweezers to put these things in place. Yeah, pretty much. And the feathers for their headdresses are expensive. They're like, you want to buy an eagle feather? It's 20 bucks each. And I was like, Mm-hmm. I'm not buying an eagle feather, but like, <laughs> wow, that is expensive. Like, did they really? Have, did yeah. someone really try to sell you an eagle feather? Oh, at, uh, um, I don't want to call it a gift shop, but what was it? The uh, well, the, the vendors, little the, the vendor, marketplace. The, yeah, you know how there's a dealer's room when you go to like an anime convention or something like that, or like mm-hmm. any real convention. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. dealer's room that they, they kind of had a dealer's row of uh, a traditional Native American food to instruments to uh, memorabilia or whatever mm-hmm. it would be, T-shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, buy one eagle, get another one yeah. free. <laughs> buy one eagle feather, yeah, get a turkey well, for free. It's a, it's, it's, I mean, but you didn't. No, <laughs> I, it's a good that you didn't because it's that's actually illegal. I don't know if I saw real <laughs> eagle feathers. I just saw maybe it was a pair. We feather. saw. A oh, real, okay. <laughs> we, we did see a real eagle. We did we see did a real see eagle. Which that is, was cool. Which was awesome as well. Going back to really encapsulating everything about America when we were walking mm-hmm. through that vendors and we were just filming and everything. I saw that eagle. Man, what a striking image that was. Yeah, and it that, was so cool. It's big ass bird. Yeah, you don't. It really understand how big an eagle is or you're like okay it's like a three foot tall bird that's pretty big but do you know what that feels like when you're next to a predator that big it's exactly. intense yeah my favorite was i think it was the Pyrenees falcon or the little gray falcon mm. what was that uh, i forget the name of that bird. peregrine peregrine falcon peregrine falcon yeah i think because yeah. they're just the sleekest and mm-hmm. the cleanest looking bird yeah and their lines are like a sports car i find them to be mm-hmm. like the coolest looking birds and uh they're also a little more friendly because like eagles and shit really have no interest in people right they they don't want to be near you you know they're just used to it so they're cool but like some of the other smaller birds i felt like had a little more interest in actually hanging out with the people yeah they seemed a little more social yeah Yeah. that that eagle just i kept looking at it going i think it wants to bite me i think it just not doesn't want to be in this room it it, it did (laughs) and it's like I'm, i'm quickly losing my patience you know it was odd because i thought you know I, that's kind of the look my one of my cats gets on her face when she's pissed. Yeah. And I was like, and uh, I don't want to be around this eagle if it goes too far, but it was beautiful to be up close to it. Yes, it was a new respect for the giant predator our country is based off of. <laughs> <laughs> and to think they originally wanted it to be a turkey. Well, you know. <laughs> Turkeys are cool, too. Though. Yeah. Uh, but aside from the gatherings of nations, um, another big subject of this episode is going to be vampires. And vampire culture, another thing that I'm very much looking forward to as a big fan of horror film and uh, horror novels and everything. You know, I love Dracula. I love all that stuff. I wanted to see what it was like to actually meet a real vampire. And we yep. had the privilege of actually talking uh, to a couple of them. And I'm not sure if I'm a true believer yet, but mm-hmm. I- I'm still interested. There's still a part of me in the back of my mind that thinks... These guys are telling the truth. Yeah. Like, these guys are really vampires. These these are the modern vampires that people have been talking about for years and years and years. Uh, it's just that culture's been diluted over time, and uh, we're, we're getting the real deal here. So yeah. this was a true interview with a vampire, if oh, you will. Oh, man. Yeah, I knew talking. you were going to throw that line you in there. Know, <laughs> we have to. This is the nerdcast. Of course I am. Well, you got to <laughs> throw that line in mm-hmm. there. Well, you know, I mean, talking to someone who self-identifies and, and seriously says it and, you know, part of the And premise, does it. And does it and actually does drink human blood. And, you know, they're 
explanation is that they lack something that other the rest of us can get energy from food, but they actually need to go and get it from human blood. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't want to <laughs> dig in on the vampire people because well, you I don't like have them to. as people. Okay. That's the yeah. thing. Everything is you can at the end of the day not like these people for their choices or disagree with them or choose to believe what they believe is wrong. But these were fun people to hang out with and they were inviting and they let us into their lives. And no, none of them had dark dungeons with, uh, you know, with caskets that they laid in. At least I don't think so. What I think is they're normal people that just have a weird hobby, you know, or a weird (laughs) way of dealing with, the explanations of life and the day-to-day struggle of living, you know, yeah. like they just have their own way of looking at it. I don't really think drinking human blood would do anything for me. I think it would be a hell of a problem, <laughs> yeah. uh, like obstacle to put in your life to like make yourself have to be okay. You know, it's a weird way to deal with it. Um, and the other thing is I feel like they have a few modern perspectives on it that I didn't even really mm-hmm. think like, the vampire we met says he only drinks blood from people that give it to him. Right. He does not yeah. attack people and he doesn't drink it from animals because animals can't give consent. So I'm like, okay, you're like a, a cool, nice vampire. Yeah. You know, the, like the, you're, you're the politically like, correct vampire. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like you ask consent, you know, you're like the, the PC principle of fucking vampires over here, you know? Yeah. And, uh, PC bro, you PC vampire <laughs> and, and he's a PC vamp. And he was just really nice, and he also took us to his voodoo store that he's the manager mm-hmm. of. Yeah. And he made a, uh, what was it called? A grigri. A grigri, mm-hmm. which is a, a charm of some kind that you would wear that would bring you luck, right? Yeah, his was, uh, I think he was doing health that day. A uh, health? But they're, but they're for anything, for luck, for love, for good relationships. Yeah, and so there he was showing you a piece of the way he views the world. And you have to respect the guy because he was fun, he was nice, and he opened mm-hmm. uh, his home and lifestyle to us. And uh, it was an enjoyable experience. And also getting to know the vampire expert yeah. that we met that teaches at Georgia Tech. John Browning. He's, he's an amazing guy. And we, to, we that was a really actually our first interview. And we talked for a long time. Of course, I put that on myself because once I get going on a subject, that's, that's kind of how it goes. So mm-hmm. apologies to you guys for having to... Sit, sit you there for like what was it an hour and a half or so while I was gabbing with this guy it was good though because yeah it's what you hired us for yeah. it, it was good but uh but he was fascinating and he's a really fun personable guy too you know you would think someone like that okay they're probably living in their parents basement well no he has a very nice condo in in midtown Atlanta and that's you know that's a nice area of town he has some knickknacks on his bookshelves uh he has a lot of vampire books in his bookshelves which you would expect because he's an academic but he has these cute little knickknacks but he's not living in a dungeon he's not going around dressing in black and for that matter neither did our uh self-identified vampire he was i think as he showed he said, up with like an iron maiden t-shirt yeah on something yeah, like that it was up? that <laughs> and, and and blue jeans and he's like i'm a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy you yeah. know that's a like the visual of the vampire was not the important part to a lot of the vampire people we met. Mm -hmm. The lifestyle was. And that was something that I think a lot of people would get lost on. They were like, where's the guy's cape? Where's yeah. fangs? Yeah, that's, going into this, I'm like, I'm expecting to see some fake prosthetic teeth, maybe some dark eyeshadow or something mm-hmm. around those lines. Like, why yeah. does he look like he came out of Hot Topic? Yeah, but yeah. These, these guys, well, yeah. were just, they're just normal, run-of-the-mill guys you'd see on the street. Mm-hmm. 
until they attack you at night. Yeah, well, <laughs> but that is, I mean, that is going back to it. Everybody we interviewed really is just trying to live their lives. Everybody for all the episodes, just trying to live their lives. And, you know, just because they get into areas which a lot of society says is taboo or too weird to discuss doesn't mean they're really any different than you and I. That no, true. it's very true. Like, unless unless they're uh, taking it too far, you know, they're really just normal people yeah. that found a way to deal with life. And that's the number one theme that I'm going to keep saying because I was like, okay, we're going to run into a weirdo that likes to suck people's body junk out of them when they're doing bombings. Just yeah. normal guys. Like, yeah. I worked on a farm and I was good with dead animals, so I thought this was a good career for me too. Yeah. Or a, a middle-aged gentleman who said, I just wanted to change careers and I think this would be a good second career for me, yeah. you know? Or, like, uh, I think we met a few, like, 20-year-old girls that mm -hmm. they were just like, this is the career path I want to go down, and this is – I'm studying in college to try to get this done before I'm 25, you know? Yeah. Like, normal people just choosing a career and a path, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, I think it in some way demystified the world for me, mm -hmm. going through After Hours, but in the same way sort of said, look, the visuals that the media shoves at you – is not where it ends and begins. It's all in the people's heads and how they view the world. Right. You know, like these are just normal people that have a different perspective. They're not putting on a fucking Halloween show every time you see them in real life. Right. You know, so uh, that do you want to take us through episode six? Sure. We, yeah. Episode six, an untimely frost is about suicide. And that's the sole topic of that episode. It was uh, something that, that is very, very, again, taboo. People do not like to talk about it. People have a lot of preconceptions about why people attempt suicide. And Mel mental illness in general is yeah. something no one really talks about. Right. And it, it's, it's something a lot like death in many ways. It just because suicide is related to death. But you're right. Mental illness is the same way. Uh, people don't want to talk about it because it scares them. Or they have preconceptions and they don't want necessarily those preconceptions to be challenged because they're comfortable with them. And they don't want to necessarily have to look at the world in a different way. But hopefully this episode will give some people some ideas on uh, some new perspective on what it means to go through this. Whether you're a person who survived a suicide attempt or whether you're a person who lost someone through suicide. We even learned a new language to use when describing this and that that was an eye-opener for me and I'd been in journalism for 25 years and realized that for all those years I was inadvertently committing you know kind of perpetuating stereotypes by saying people commit suicide but when you look at it people die by suicide when you say commit well you commit a crime you commit an atrocity and so to use the term commit with suicide just subtly reinforces the negative stereotypes yeah and in some ways uh i hope i'm not calling anyone out but i also found them to be uh well rightly so very sensitive about certain things mm -hmm. like we released a promo and they were yeah. like don't show someone's looking down holding their face yeah you know? ho ho like, holding holding their head in their hands yeah i was just like they're like that's bad imagery for suicide and i was mm -hmm. like oh okay I was like, I never thought about it like yeah. that. But that's and what I, I think either. of when I think of a sad person in sorrow and things like that. But they're like, we don't like that image in the suicide community. Yeah, so it's because, that. yeah, because, uh, because it perpetuates, again, the stereotype that you would always obviously see or notice when someone has a mental illness or is suffering with suicidal thoughts. And you don't always know. Yeah. Sometimes the person is behaving what you think may be perfectly normally. And you may know this person very well and think there's nothing wrong. And yet they well, may still have Well, you've seen that this. time and time again where there's a happy person 
person, the happiest person in the room is sometimes the saddest person. Robin Williams immediately comes to mind. Yeah. You know, like the happiest, the person that's trying to make everyone laugh the most is the saddest. You know, that's not the person sitting in the corner, not talking to anyone, mm-hmm. putting up the red flags. Exactly. So uh, I understand they're, they're very uh, uh, in tuned and sensitive group by how they want to be represented. Right. And uh, we just met a ton of cool individuals that had really powerful stories and you got to see it from all perspectives from like the families mm-hmm. to an outsider to the person themselves that's suffering mm-hmm. from you know people around them that are helping them people that have art projects dedicated to suicide sort of uh survivors you know like we just saw suicide from all perspectives and as someone who does not suffer from in my opinion any mental illness at least nothing that's been documented yet um <laughs> I didn't really connect with this topic in the sense that, like, I saw myself and reflected into this topic, but I saw the human story, absolutely, you know? And I think I'm lucky to not go down that rabbit hole in some ways. Uh, and uh, there, I can't even imagine um, being stuck in a loop thinking about that. But I saw what it does and what it's like for a lot of people, yeah. you know? What did you think about that? that sort of topic. Well, unfortunately I have known people in my life who have taken their own lives before. Mm -hmm. Um, some people, uh, that were good friends with my brother, um, people that I considered like my very own family. So this is something that I have experienced, but like you, I don't think I've, I don't think I'm going to be diagnosed with anything. I don't really have those type of thoughts, but it gave me a much better perspective on what it is that they were going through. It didn't answer all my questions because ultimately it, it is still one of the greatest mysteries as to what goes on in the human mind during that type of thing. It, it's a very personal thing as well, and that's what I learned the most from this, especially with our uh, our visit with uh, Desiree Stage. Yeah, Desiree um, Stage. When we got to see her art exhibit and everything, um, just beautiful work, fantastic <laughs> um, photography, um, some amazing paintings that were in that place. Mm-hmm. And you see that all this amazing, beautiful imagery and all this creativity, and you're like... How could someone who could do this would even think about killing themselves? Right, and it's just it's it's really shocking to be perfectly honest. But yeah. it, it it also made me have a much better better understanding of it and the mindset that these people get into. And most importantly, what I loved about the takeaway from the uh, the segment, the suicide segment, is that there is a way out for people. There is a light yeah. at the end of the tunnel. And just like the hospice episode, this is an episode that I think is really going to help people cope with these type of emotions and the things that they're actually going through and basically letting them know that they're not alone in this. People right. go through this every single day. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where this type of thing is just swept under the rug. Yeah, or or it's portrayed in ways that are um, more Hollywood hype than anything. Mm-hmm. 13 Reasons Why is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, the way they put it dealt with suicide that caused a huge uproar in the media. Can you explain that a little more? Cause Corey and I don't think I've seen that show. I know it's about a kid in high school who suffers from mental illness and considers or does suicide by the end of the show. I don't know. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking for a spoiler, but what I'm saying is how is it, uh, portrayed in a good or bad way and why did it upset or make people happy? Well, here's the thing. I haven't seen the show either. Okay. So a from lot what of what, yeah, yeah. For a lot of what they were saying was basically, uh, that it perpetuated some of the stereotypes. Types. My understanding is that it has to do with a young woman who commits suicide and then uh, leaves behind messages about why she did it and uh, seems to be blaming people. But I may have this plot line totally screwed up, so don't don't go by that if you haven't seen the show. What what The one thing I heard a lot, I'm sorry to interrupt you, mm-hmm. uh, Morgan, but uh, the one thing I heard a lot in the suicide thing is people 
don't want you to talk about suicide because they think it will expose people to it. So therefore, there will be more suicide because people will understand that that's an option. Right. And that, to me, was mind-blowing. Like, I was like, what? They almost treat it like it's some sort of disease that you can contract. Like, if I hear about that... I'm going to start having suicidal thoughts. I'm going to want to have to take my To me, that's been disproven in everything it's ever been. Like, violence in video games. If kids see violence in video games, they'll go do violent things. Exactly. And I'm like, I don't think that that methodology transfers over. Mm -hmm. And I felt Mm -hmm. like some of the suicide people were seriously thought that was the dumbest thing. And then some Mm -hmm. of them are like, no, maybe. Like, not saying they were for it, but they don't want to, like, always talk about suicide either. And I was sort of, like, taken aback by, even internally within that group, I sort of got the vibe that that wasn't even decided upon. Yeah, that, that there was some disagreement there. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I think it's important to note that anytime time, this was actually at the Conference for American Association of Suicidology that they went to. But these are people from all different disciplines, so they're all, always going to have different perspectives. It's hard to say. I mean, if you don't discuss suicide, then it becomes more of a problem because you're sweeping it under the rug and you're not bringing it out into the open where you could potentially help people who are affected by this. On the other hand, you know, if if you start talking about it, does it put the thought in someone's head? I don't think there's any consensus or any hard proof one way or the other whether it does. But it's how you talk about it. If you're going to talk about it, how you talk about it, that I think is what the overwhelming message I got from some of the participants was. If someone wants to kill themselves, there's not really much you can do to stop them. I mean, they can just eventually just jump off something high. Or yes. It's, or um, it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what I'm trying to say is that these people, if they're in a sad spot, I don't think being exposed to the concept of suicide is the thing that's going to push them over the edge. I think their brain, their mind, their situation, their desperation will do that. Right. The, the ex- explanation of suicide will not do that. Mental health is something that is just so unexplored, taboo, and just removed from day-to-day society here because, I mean, you can even go, I'm not trying to get too political here, but like sh- mass shootings, like no one wants to say we have a mental health problem in this country. They want to keep saying we have a gun problem. And while we may have a gun problem or may not, I'll leave that up to you to decide. I'm not here to tell you either way. I think uh, we also have a mental health problem that no one yeah. wants to talk about for some reason. And we saw that a lot with the suicide episode. And uh the cool thing is, and the true-to-life thing is, we don't have the answers after doing this documentary. We just right. have a bunch of perspectives and a bunch of thoughts that we've gathered and presented to the audience. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important thing is that, well, I mean, some people may say we take advocacies in, in certain things or take a, a, a position in some things. Um, but I think we do a very good job of just letting the people we're interviewing present their stories and letting the viewer make up their mind, you know. What do I feel about this? You know, do, is this something I want to include in my life? Do I want to talk about these things or pursue these subjects further? And what do I think about this person they just interviewed? Is this person batshit crazy? Or is this person got legitimately got something going on? Yeah, I think we there's some of the people that people might think. Uh, I think, you know, if you nine out of ten people might think they're crazy by seeing them but mm-hmm. there's some that i think it might even change your mind by the end of it yeah. and you know at the same time we're so close to it because we physically have met these human beings we've yeah. had conversations before during and after the camera was on you know so we just know these people so well so i'm very excited for the audience to actually take a good you know a good look at it i was going to say stab but since it's about death, <laughs> yes yeah that. Good, good stab at it and uh but yeah like we have some powerful stuff here and again six 
some of them are over one hour. Yes. Six episodes, all at least an hour. And uh, let's talk about the release schedule. Where, when and where and how and how do people see it? Okay, well, it actually debuts this Thursday, October 19th, which is tomorrow. The first episode. The not first all episode. Not yeah. all of them. And it uh, it can be viewed on www afterhoursclub.tv that is our website if you go there now you'll see our trailer on the home page and you'll see if you go to the video section you'll see all the promos we've released but uh beginning tomorrow the, this will be released in the late afternoon we're going to have the first episode up on the home page so they'll be released every thursday from now until november 23rd awesome well uh, Morgan, I have to say thank you for this wild ride, this uh, mind-opening exploration of the human condition that we have gone on mm-hmm. called the After Hours Club. And I think uh, if anyone has the time to check out some of these episodes, and you know, these aren't five-minute episodes. This isn't YouTube content. This yeah. is real documentary work, guys. And I really hope you give it a good, a good attempt to watch it, even though it may be kind of a taboo topic here and there. And uh, if you're listening to this way after we've released this, all the episodes will be available online so you can check them out and just go to the concepts that interest you then, you know? Yeah. If you don't want to see all of them, that's fine. Just jump in and go to the suicide one or go to the non-mainstream religion one or the Angels Among Us hospice episode, which Mm -hmm. is definitely one of the most upbeat episodes, you know? Or if you want to see sex and death, you know, go to that episode. So the you know we just want to put it all out there kind of the netflix model the whole season is out there you can watch it whenever you want absolutely and it's good because the episodes are pretty self-contained yes you don't have to watch watch them in order or watch one to understand the other no and uh also the cool thing Corey, i don't think we've said this you and i are like in this documentary yeah Yeah. that's another thing and before we even jump into that again morgan thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of this project oh well thank you an absolute privilege it's expanded my mind it's given me a much better view and perspective on this culture of death um, and as Christian said uh, we're actually in the documentary a little bit yeah. you yourself are the host the creator of the series mm-hmm. um, but you decided to allow us the camera crew and everybody to kind of occasionally jump in do some interviews uh, so you guys will actually be able to see us in the documentary and I will make sure for all of the people who follow this on our YouTube channel there will be links in the description box to not only the first episode when it's released but to all of the promos which have been created for the show and we would absolutely love your feedback on all of this and when i say feedback i stress real feedback i don't want you guys to say Corey and christian sent me here i want you guys right. to legitimately tell us what you thought about this documentary what your takeaway from it was and uh what you really liked about it or didn't like uh it really is going to be very important to us and uh, we will update this podcast as it goes on with all of the new material that is released so if you are listening to this again it will be in the description box yeah guys thank you so much and uh you know Thank you for even giving us this hour to explain our documentary to you. We really do appreciate it, and we look forward to everything you guys have to say about it. Yeah, and sure. may I just say one one final thing is I, I, I'm very grateful for both you, Christian, and Corey, and for our editor, Jordan, for, for agreeing to do this. I could never have done this without you, and I couldn't have picked a, a finer group of people to do it with. That's thank right. you very much, sir. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Morgan, thank you for being on the show today. Christian... Thank you for being on the show again. Uh, Guys, before we leave, I just want to thank you again for listening to the Powerful Nerdcast. There's a number of great ways that you can actually support this show. One of the best ways is to use our Amazon link. It is RogueIntel slash Amazon.com. And one of the, the best things about this link is you can go there. You can buy anything from books 
TV, movies, and you're going to help support all of these great podcast shows on Rogue Intel, and you're not going to be spending any extra money, so make sure to do that. I highly recommend that if you are uh, listening to us talk about Joseph Scott Morgan, check out his book, Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. You can find it on Amazon, and like I said, you'll be supporting all of these great shows. You can download this program for free at iTunes, as well as at Blog Talk Radio, and of course, Rogue Intel, which also has a number of other great programming. So thank you guys very much for joining us. We will see you guys next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. <laughs>